In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. On first blush, our scriptures this week take us, or at least me, into a very conflicting journey. The Isaiah passage tells us to come to a feast. And if you can't pay for it, no big deal. And if you can, why would you not spend your money on anything but good food and wine? And Isaiah says, listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. These words are written as the words of God, who then says, this party is so good that all other nations will want to join you, even your enemies. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. It's as if God is saying, I tend to think differently than you do. And on first blush, this almost sounds like, eat, drink, and be merry. Don't waste your life by taking life too seriously. Then our psalm seems to place these sentiments into a prayer, where thirst and hunger are freely satisfied by this God who satisfies all my needs and stuffs me with all good things. But then along comes Paul in Corinthians, and he spoils the party with his seeming moralistic and repentant plea, telling us that these ancestors and all their partying didn't please God. So be aware of eating, drinking, and being merry, because when God was displeased, 23,000 of them died. Do not become idolaters, he says, as some of them did, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day, killed by serpents and the destroyer. And then in our gospel, Jesus confusingly picks up on this theme of suffering as punishment for sin and says those Jewish Galileans killed in the temple by Pilate while they were sacrificing to God, were not sinners who were being punished at the hands of Pilate. Jesus makes it clear to his disciples and us that suffering is not a punishment for sin. But then confusingly, he tells them that unless they repent, they're going to perish just like these Galileans did. And this seems to me confusingly and utterly Guilt-producing. Pleasing this God seems to be a moving target. There's no getting it right for this God. And if you had a father or a mother or even a boss that you could never please, then you know exactly what this feels like. And then right after telling them to repent or die, Jesus tells this story of the barren fig tree that the owner wants to cut down after three years of producing no figs, and the gardener pleads for one more year to cultivate and fertilize if to see if it will produce fruit. And often, after all this confusion, we are given another chance. Well, that really clears things up. I'm left with my moral and mental frame of mind filled with confusion, not knowing what to believe. Ah, or as Isaiah's first word in our passage says, Hoy, maybe that's the point. 
I want to entertain the idea this morning that what we believe isn't as important as what we notice or how we notice. Come to think of it, I have noticed oftentimes in the scriptures where they give us a seeming conflicting or confusing ideas of how to think. How many times did the disciples ask Jesus to speak more clearly or more plainly, and instead they just got another story or a parable? He gave them something that somehow seemed worthwhile, but seldom did it clarify their uncertainty. And I suggest that this confusion is especially frustrating for our culture, where instant gratification is a necessity and the right information is instantly available on Google, as long as we're willing to look at the ads. So to entertain this idea that what we believe isn't as important as what we notice or how we notice, I want to focus on two words in our texts and connect them with the story of the fig tree, which seems to hold the summary of Jesus' thoughts and perhaps the heart of God. The words are ho, the first word in an Isaiah passage, and the word repent, which is seemingly where both Paul and Jesus take us. I looked up the meaning of the word ho, pronounced hoi in Hebrew. It is defined as ah, alas, or even. It's an interjection. In more recent usage, we see it in the phrase land ho, a sailor's cry of relief or warning when sighting land. And it is meant to draw our attention to something new. And it's connected in our scriptures with the word behold. It's a synonym. And I want to suggest that it is telling us that it is more important to behold than to believe. It carries a feeling of paying attention, drawing your attention to notice. The word behold is used 1,547 times in the Bible. However, today behold is seldom used in our vocabulary. It somehow doesn't fit our experience. We prefer words like think, believe, understand, be right, correct, etc. And so perhaps to better understand behold, we should look first of all at words that are listed as the opposite of behold. Words like ignore, overlook, disregard, be blind to, misapprehend, be at cross purposes, be unconscious of, or even mistrust. Behold is about beholding is what is about what you are aware of rather than what you believe. In fact, believing can limit your capacity to behold. It can create a confirmation bias, a tendency to only notice or behold those things that confirm your belief. And yet, behold, beholding is a word of openness, of receptivity. In her fascinating book, Leaving Church, Barbara Brown Taylor, a preacher and theologian, describes how her theological perspective has changed over the years and how it has moved her from believing to beholding 
and I identify, perhaps you do too. She says this, The parts of the Christian story that had drawn me into the church were not the believing parts, but the beholding parts. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Behold, the Lamb of God. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Christian faith seemed to depend on beholding things that were clearly beyond belief beyond belief. They didn't ignore belief. They just transcended it. And she goes on, I wanted out of the belief business and back into the beholding business. I wanted to recover the kind of faith that has nothing to do with being sure about what I believe and everything to do with trusting God to catch me, though I'm not sure of anything. And her book shares the journey of how she emotionally and mentally left the concept of church as believing and moved towards an embodiment of the church as beholding. Maybe our confusing passages are telling us to stop being preoccupied with the correct way to believe and get back to beholding, trusting God to behold and hold us even when we are unsure of everything. And I've said before, as I've said before, this will invite us to let go of bad certainties and hold on to good uncertainties. For me, that's humility. This is about awareness, and awareness is more in line with the mind of God when God says, my way of thinking is not your natural way of thinking. God's way of thinking is about beholding. It's as if God is saying over 1,500 times, I've mentioned this in the scriptures, and yet right and wrong believing is where your free will, your choices, your actions tend to take you. God beholds us in love and invites us to behold God and one another in this same love, regardless of right and wrong belief. I mean, isn't it great to be back in our sanctuary where we are invited to behold one another rather than insist on our interpretation of who is right and who is wrong. And preoccupation with the right and the wrong belief always brings division. Just listen to the news and much of our discourse. Have you ever experienced a time when ideas about who's right and who's wrong have been as divisive with all sides using the battle cry of freedom, competing ideas of freedom, which once were the battle cry of our democracies, now seem to threaten that very democratic value. Beholding invites us to step back from the pace of our conflicted lives and behold, to behold what God is doing around us and in us, to behold, to be still, and know that I am God. So, ho and behold. Now let's look at that word, repent. Wow, have we abused that word. It is actually more of a beholding word than a believing word, but in our believing we have tended to see it as a Hollywood movie image of a ragged, animal-skinned John the Baptist carrying a sign that says, repent or burn in hell. This definition is meant to create shame and guilt, gifts that tend to keep on giving. 
and our dictionaries and usage support this misrepresentation. Repentance has come to mean regret about moral wrongdoing or sin and has supported what I call a worm-such-as-I theology. What What an affront to the divine beholding that says we are all created in the image of this one who is loving action in the world. Repentance does not mean feeling sorry for your sins and asking forgiveness. That may be the dictionary definition, but the biblical definition of repentance is change your mind or have a different mindset. In short, be open-minded. And this is also expressed in the scriptures as a softness of heart. Have you noticed how changing your mind about something that you strongly believe in is extremely hard? A closed-minded person thinks that his opinions about issues are right. They are his or her beliefs. And I understand why people don't want to re-examine their beliefs and change their minds because it can be scary. But just feeling sorry for your sins and asking for forgiveness is not enough. It will give you a temporary relief, but it won't bring lasting change in your thinking and behaving. Take the obvious case of domestic violence. An abusive husband beats his wife, and in the morning when he comes to his senses, he apologizes to her, and as a token of his repentance, he brings her flowers in the evening. But a week later, he beats her up again. And he goes through the same pattern, apology, forgiveness, flowers. In therapy, we call this a cycle of abuse. We're not exempt from it. Paul himself tells us how he wasn't exempt for it. He said, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. Each of us has those things in our lives. This kind of repentance is not sustainable. Moving beyond belief to beholding brings a flexibility, a softness to our way of thinking. When we behold, it becomes more important to understand than to be right. And this only happens through awareness, through patient beholding. And that is why Jesus said, repent first, which means change your thinking first. Have a different mindset. Your preoccupation with right and wrong thinking, your belief system is often killing you and killing others. Open your hearts and minds to a way of thinking that seeks to behold rather than just believe. As Mother Teresa has said, The Jesus in me sees the Jesus in you. Beholding. This, I sustain or suggest, is true freedom. Because this is a freedom for us, not just for me. And here we finally come to the story of the fig tree. It's a message of patient trust. Something Chris talked about last Sunday. In an urgency of efficiency, the landowner... The businessman wants to cut the tree down because after three years it hasn't produced any fruit, not one fig. It's his belief system that this is a waste of soil, air, sunlight, and fertilizer. So just get rid of it. 
but the gardener is a beholder. He hasn't just watched this tree. He's beheld many trees in his lifetime of gardening, and so he thinks differently. Let's be patient. Give it some time. Cultivate and fertilize rather than get rid of. Did you know that this is true of every fig tree? Fig trees only begin to produce fruit after three to five years. Right and wrong thinking creates a feeling of urgency. And the urgency says, don't just stand there, do something. But the experience of beholding says, sometimes just stand there. Something you can't yet see is beginning to happen. Be patient. And so I end with these words from Pierre Tilliard de Chardin. For me, they are about beholding and repentance in their true meaning. This prayer is called Patient Trust. Above all, trust in the slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. We should like to skip the intermediate stages. We are impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. And yet it is the law of all progress that it is made by passing through some stages of instability and that it may take a very long time. And so I think it is with you. Your ideas mature gradually. Let them grow. Let them shape themselves without undue haste. Don't try to force them on as though you could be today what time that is to say, grace, circumstance, and acting on your own goodwill, what time will make of you tomorrow? Only God could say what this new spirit gradually forming within you will be. Give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading you. And accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete.